0: Hello and welcome to the Harvard EdCast, a series of conversations with thought leaders in the field of education from across the country and around the world. I'm your host, Matt Weber, and today we kick off our 2011 season with a most distinguished fellow, literally. He's a visiting fellow at Harvard, but also head of McKinsey's Global Education Practice and former head of British Prime Minister Tony Blair's delivery unit from 2001 to 2005. EdCast guests have been presidents and governors, doctors, CEOs but never a night until tonight. Welcome to the EdCast, Sir Michael Barber.
1: Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to it.
0: And a quick note for our listening audience, he is wearing a blue suit, not of armor. Enough of the cheekiness. In 2007, you once described yourself as an education reformer. When does one no longer simply act as a teacher or consultant or professor, but truly become a reformer?
1: I think you become a reformer when you... um try to influence whole systems. Um, obviously you can do reform at the micro level of the school um, uh, and uh, that's welcome and important and some, there's some great school leaders around uh, around the world, around this country, around my own country, um, England. So uh, at that level you can reform, but I think of an education reformer as somebody who's dealing with a system. It might be a school district, it might be a chain of charter schools, it might be a state, it might be a country. Um, and When I think of myself, and when I said that in 2007, I was thinking of the four years I did working for Tony Blair before I ran the delivery unit when I was responsible for the implementation of the school reforms in England. I think of the work I do for governments around the world um, assisting them with education reform. I think of the work I do here uh, with um, states who are uh, facing the challenge of improving the performance of their education systems, but uh, those systems they know need reshaping and they need to strengthen their capacity to deliver.
0: Now, in 2010, it was a big year for education in many ways. It seems like the world, or at least the American media, is just sort of waking up to the dire need for improving schools. Now, can 2011 continue the momentum, especially with the McKinsey Report's findings, and is there a call to action in this report?
1: Um, I think there's a the, the the McKinsey report that was published in um, at the end of November of 2010 was a, a major landmark for us, and we hope it will be a, a major influence around the world. And yes, it is a call to action. It's a call to action in two ways. First of all, it's a call to action because it says if you do the right things, you can improve your system significantly within six years and really transform it in in uh, uh, say ten or twelve years. Uh, so that's a very optimistic message. The second is uh, it says. Um, Increasingly, we know what combination of um, policies work. Um, Until even five or 10 years ago, people doing education reform were uh, guessing. Uh, Not entirely, there was some evidence, but because of the run of PISA reports since 2000, because of the run of Tim's uh, uh, analysis going back beyond 2000, uh, we now have a much clearer evidence base um, uh, and a much sharper analysis of what combinations of policies work in what circumstances and our McKinsey report from 2010 is a major contribution to that because it, it's the first one that says, uh, well we've looked at in this case 22 systems around the world that have improved significantly, we've got evidence that they improved Uh, And it takes everything from Madhya Pradesh in India, Minas Gerais in Brazil, through to Korea and Finland. So whatever stage your education system is at now, we can say, here's a combination of policies that's likely to help you move and improve.
0: Was there anything that you found in your report that was particularly surprising to you?
1: I think that... I mean, uh, the, the education is, is, a, is a world full of surprises, so of course uh, at the level of um, details you find surprises. I think, the, um, to me, the most um, important thing is we're able to show that whatever stage you're at now, wherever your education system is now, there is a combination of policies that will help you move forward. Uh, and to get that to the level of clarity we've been able to do, I think, is um, a, a, a delight and a surprise uh, and very positive course the other thing that needs to bear in mind is we we've selected this sample on the basis that they demonstrably improved most systems around the world even though the knowledge is crystallizing and we know more about what to do most systems around the world aren't doing it and at one level that is a surprise
0: talk a little bit about the colossal undertaking involved in putting together this report
1: well it was a um, it was a two-year program of work. Um, it was something McKinsey wanted to do for itself. It wasn't done for any uh, client. Nobody paid for it. Uh, we, we invested our time in it. Um, a team, uh, first of all, uh, worked through to, to identify systems that on the um, universal scale that Eric Hanushek at Stanford um, originally designed, uh, combining PISA and TIMS, um, uh, we identified systems that had improved. And then the team... Uh, we literally sent a team to each one of the systems. So they toured the globe for a few months. Um, uh, we made sure they were able to speak to current influential people, education ministers, education leaders, but also uh, some of the past leaders who had been responsible for the changes, say, 5, 10 or 15 years ago. Um, and then we, uh, we, were, so we were using broadly a common set of questions that we were asking in the different systems. Uh, and then we went back to base, and we try and make sense of that, and we have a lot of debate and discussion about the meaning of things and uh, categorization. Uh, and then, of course, there's the, the writing and the production of the report. So it's, it's a major undertaking, as you say. Um, but we, we think that you, to do this kind of work, it's not enough just to read documents about countries. You have to actually go and talk to the people who did the work.
0: Speaking about the PISA report, we actually had André Schleicher on the show uh, in December. And he mentioned there's a certain culture of respect that motivates people to become teachers like in Finland or South Korea. Oftentimes it's the top quarter of the students who go into that profession even if it doesn't pay top dollar. Now granted there is Teach for America, but in the United States is it possible to think our culture can change and we can reimagine a new professionalized teacher?
1: Um, And not only is it possible for the United States to do that, I think it's necessary um, and I think it um, uh, is something that is perfectly um, realizable within, um, you could get started now, within 5 to 10 years you'd see the difference, within 10 to to 20 years you could see a a huge transformation. Um, And I think that to compete with the best systems in the world, that will be absolutely essential. It won't be only the US that is struggling with that. Um, It will be many countries in the world. Um, And the reason I think that will happen is because people understand that the quality of their education system is so fundamentally tied up to many social outcomes and economic outcomes. As you know, McKinsey published a report in 2009 uh, called the, um, the Economic Impact of the Achievement Gap. Um, and we were able to show that the um, the achievement gap, uh, or the achievement gaps in America's education system are, have the same economic consequences as a permanent national recession of the size and, size and scale this country saw in 2009. Now, every citizen of the United States knows that that is not something they want to live with, but the fact is they are living with it you take a country at a different end of the spectrum, Pakistan, they had a catastrophic flood last year. Everybody remembers it. Um, I'm English. When people tell you there's a flood the size of England, you get some idea of the scale of what went on in Pakistan. It's had devastating economic consequences. We're able to show that um, their, ec- their education failure is like four floods like that every year. So you think of the flood as a crisis, but the education system is a hidden ongoing crisis, a permanent national recession in the United States four floods a year in Pakistan. When you take that into account, you think, um, we are not gonna be able to succeed in the 21st century as a country. The individuals who live within our country are not gonna be able to succeed and thrive and prosper in the 21st century without a good education system. So you come back to well, what drives a good education system and the most important thing is well-qualified, well-motivated uh, teachers. Uh, not just a set of individual teachers, but teachers who collaborate uh, to drive continuous improvement. And you need to get the right kind of people in. And they are people with good academic qualifications and a set of personal characteristics.
0: You used to work in politics with Tony Blair. Is there anything about that world that you miss? And how closely knit is politics with education?
1: Well, um, it's only about that world I miss. I mean, uh, when you have the um, an extraordinary Um, humbling opportunity to work for four years in Downing Street for a Prime Minister. Uh, You learn a lot, uh, you see a whole country from the political centre, you see the whole world from a a, a person who is very influential on the world stage. I was there from 2001 to 2005 in Downing Street, so I was there just before September the 11th 2001. So although I wasn't involved in all that, you get that picture, so you, you can't not miss that when you stop. Um, uh, So I miss that. I miss the people I work with. They were absolutely fantastic. Tony Blair himself was a a joy to work for, a tremendous um, human being to work with, never never mind as a political leader. So of course I miss that. But on the other hand, I now get to see the whole world. I I now get to influence uh, governments around the world. Uh, I now get to draw on the experiences I had there. And coming to the second part of your question, politics and education are inevitably connected um, because Education is a major public good. Um, It's a major public investment. I think um, I'm going from memory that um, public education around the world is something like a $3 trillion um, sum of money. Uh, So it's a $3 trillion business or sector of the economy, whatever you want to call it. It's over 4% of global GDP, um, and it's a much bigger proportion of the public sector uh, investment. Uh, and therefore it's going to be contested politically. Uh, We invented politics um, back in the time of the ancient Greeks as a way of thinking through how we make those big public decisions about how we allocate money, um, what values we apply to that money, uh, and what ends we uh, derive from the investments we make and the the goals we want. So politics and education are inevitably connected. Where I think um, people get frustrated is either when um, it seems as though the entire um, approach of a government is about um, doing something to the education system to try and win the next election, not necessarily to make the education system better. Or when they think there is excessive uh, political interference in the day-to-day. Um, so, for for example, if you have, um, you've got to have standards and a curriculum. But what you, no teacher, no system can succeed if every time there's a change of government, you change the content of the curriculum. If somebody says, well, I want this bit of history, and somebody else says, no, I want that bit of history, and if that changes every three or four years, that, that makes it very hard to improve the system. So the allocation of resource and broad strategy and the values that underpin an education system are entirely legitimate um, political subjects uh, related to education, but the way in which the politicians around the world go about that job is fundamentally important.
0: You studied American history at Oxford and you do a lot of consulting for American states. How do you feel now knowing that you may affect American history with all the work that you're doing in education?
1: Um, I, I don't um, claim to be able to affect American history in the future, but I would, I would be delighted if um, I was part of a m- huge network a huge movement that I think is emerging in this country uh, that will transform public education in the next five to 10 years. I feel very optimistic about um, American education, much more optimistic than most of my um, American friends. Um, So I don't claim for a minute that I'll be able to influence uh, American history, but if I can be um, a small part of a movement that changes it, that would be a great thing to look back on. And you know, um, Churchill said about the United States Um, America always does the right thing after it's exhausted all the alternatives. And when you look at the education reforms over the last 25, 30 years in America, nearly everything's been tried. Um, And overall, even the most passionate reformers would probably say the results of that effort have been largely disappointed. I think the United States might now be on the brink of getting it right. Um, I see... um, uh, very uh, strong secretary of Educa- education with a really clear agenda. I think the race to the top program is good. I think the way the states are responding to that, both the ones that um, won the money and the ones that didn't, is uh, is pretty inspiring. I think that agenda is uh, evidence-based and broadly right. Um, I see bipartisan support for that, which um, you know, in the in the context of current Amer- American politics, is very important. Um, and I see. Um, business leaders, teacher leaders, um, and others getting behind that agenda. So I think there's a real opportunity now.
0: Not just in terms of education reform, but anything, really. Who do you look
1: up to? Well, um, that's a really good question, actually. Because many people
0: would probably say they look up to you. Uh,
1: I'm not sure about that, but I I think um, in the, first of all, uh, uh, as you, as you mentioned a few minutes ago, I'm a, I'm a historian, so there's people I look up to uh, in the past. My favourite American president, for example, is Theodore Roosevelt, who I just think was a completely inspiring guy um, in all kinds of ways. Uh, perhaps not the easiest person to live with, but but a tremendous um, a, a, a tremendous um, figure. Um, who, by the way, uh, was very um, strong on public education. Um, I, uh, when I look back through British history, I love. Um, Gladstone and Churchill in different ways. When I come back to my own working life and bring it closer to home, uh, I love. Uh, I loved, as I s- mentioned a few minutes ago, working for Tony Blair. I think he was a very inspiring leader. Uh, of course, he made errors, uh, like anybody in power, for ten years. But, but, a, but a tremendous influence for good. Um, and within my own field of education. Um, There are many people around the world that uh, I admire and look up to. I think what Joel Klein did in New York is fantastic. I think we were talking about Michelle Ray. Uh, I'm a great admirer of Michael Fullan um, at uh, formerly of the University of Toronto, whose work I admire. Uh, And uh, in my own country, uh, there are a whole uh, number of education reformers that I've liked. Uh, Probably the one I'd pick out most is the Secretary of State for Education I worked for, David Blunkett, who was born blind, um, uh, overcame uh, uh, poverty, blindness, um, uh, dreadful death of his father while he was in his early teenage, uh, uh, became a very successful politician um, and one of the most successful um, Secretaries of State for Education in post-war Britain. And is a constant inspiration to me. So there's plenty of people around the world that I look to, look up to, and admire. Um, and here, right here in Harvard, um, I'm a great fan of um, the work of uh, Professor Richard Elmore.
0: Sir Michael Barber, Harvard visiting fellow, consultant, teacher, and true reformer. Thank you very much for dropping by with us today.
1: It was a pleasure. Thank you.
0: This has been the Harvard EdCast, a production of the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I'm your host, Matt Weber. Thank you kindly for listening. The Harvard Graduate School of Education, working at the nexus of practice policy and research.